Hello, ghouls and gals, and welcome to another episode of Mania. I am your host and narrator, Harlequin Grimm. But before we delve into today's story, there is something I'd like to address. Just a little over a week ago, prior to this recording, the Christchurch shooting occurred. It is another tragedy which stains the memory of anybody who hears about it. Although I don't want to dwell on the topic more than anyone else, it did pluck out some thoughts that seemed notable enough to bring to the attention of my listeners. I figured I would attend to it now, while the event is still relevant. I haven't spoken to many horror writers or podcasters about this, but I know that I personally feel a twang of guilt and perhaps even nervousness when these atrocities strike. But what do I mean by that? Well, being a horror writer at the time of events like this almost feels like being a child. A child that plays around in the backyard with toy guns, giggling with his playmates. We pretend to shoot one another and fall on the ground laughing before getting back to our feet, only to turn around and see that our older brother has returned from a real war zone, with half his arm missing and a look in his eyes that says he's seen things he'll never forget, things we are just mimicking. The graveness of the reality we were portraying sets in, and suddenly we feel foolish in conjuring it up willfully, even in a fictitious setting. That's what it feels like to write horror stories about death, when the death of real civilians is the front page of newspapers. I was contemplating this in the shower on the day when the news broke out. Many of my writer friends on Twitter make humorous jokes about how they viciously kill off their characters, or how they delighted in a particularly merciless scene. On the surface, I don't think there is anything wrong with this, since they are dealing entirely with fictional characters, but for me, it feels like the spotlight burns twice as bright, since many of my stories involve real people, real lives, real suffering, and yet I don't pay any particular homage to those undergoing the suffering, as this podcast slogan is literally the villain side of the story. Now, I don't have a gigantic following. But were the problem to arise that listeners began to raise eyebrows at how I chuckled at particularly disturbing images in one of my stories, or how I gleefully announced that I found a countess that allegedly murdered 600 people, I want to address it here and now. I wanted to put any uncomfortable questions out on the table and give the answers before anybody feels uneasy listening to these stories or indeed interacting with their narrator. First off, History acts as a buffer between me, the story, and the audience. Centuries have a way of making tragedies feel less real. But the tragedy of yesterday, last week, or last year, might still make us uncomfortable, will make us uncomfortable, maybe even depressed when contemplating humanity's prospects. There is a discomfort, I think, with the ostensible irreverence from the telling of a murder story. On one hand, death is a part of life, and making light of it or talking about it in a normal fashion is a way of dealing with that very real threat. Then again, the suffering it imposes on our lives, the loss of loved ones, the pain of grief, there are some things that, in certain contexts, simply should not be made lightly. I regard this recent massacre as one of them. There are some podcasts out there, particularly one in the true crime genre, where I've heard the hosts crack jokes and laugh only to clear their throats literally seconds between recounts of how a victim was abused or raped before being murdered. This show discusses victims that may have died just years ago, or even sooner. 
a victim whose family members might be tuning into that episode out of morbid curiosity for how their daughter's death was spun into an entertainment piece. Now, I'm not disparaging that behavior. In some ways, I am no better, and clearly there's a following that enjoys it. It's just that I, myself, wouldn't approach such topics that way, mainly out of respect for the very real and personal tragedies you and I are likely to face sometime in our lives. There may be a moment when we won't feel so comfortable giggling about murder or abuse because it will have just happened to somebody we often grab coffee with, or we ourselves will be struggling under the arms of a psychopath trying to restrain us in our final moments. So again, out of respect to those whose lives are affected by murder, I promise that, even as I greedily pluck up grotesque details for these stories, it is, in the end, for the sake of the narrative itself, it is not a celebration of killing or needless suffering. But considering how this show is something of a collection of monsters, sometimes very real monsters, I want to make some final distinctions. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you'll have noticed that I am fond of all things demonic, unholy, or denoting of similar characteristics. What you will never see me do is make jokes about enjoying the slaughter of innocent people, or of an intent to murder anyone, because I can see how this may seem contradictory, so I'll clear the air. To me, demons do not represent the kind of evil that commits terrorist attacks. Demons represent the archetypal sins as laid out by Catholic or Christian doctrine. Those sins, typically, are quite benign to atheist, atheists, excuse me, such as myself, especially because they come from a religion that is historically strict and puritanical with regards to basic pleasures. I am talking about gluttony, lust, and other innocuous so-called sins. Since I don't hold to the alleged veracity of books like the Bible, I don't subscribe to the idea that demons, the devil, or characters of similar origin are indeed, quote, evil. Rather, I feel that demons represent humanity itself more than anything, so in aligning my aesthetic with them, I am merely admitting how utterly human I am. My weakness for violent stories, my fascination with the macabre, my sinful indulgences, my willingness to sympathize with the personalities of ghouls, banshees, and other so-called evil creatures. So, if you see any correlation between my apparent obsession with the underworld and the subject matter of these stories, know that it's all in the spirit of poking fun at morally simplistic views of right and wrong, more than it is a testament to my love for evildoing, which doesn't actually exist. Lastly, in Behind the Veil, an essay collection of mine, I discuss how villains are often made out to be trite in many fiction stories, or argue that they are often oversimplified. I insist that the villains who have complex personalities are just as interesting if not more so, than the protagonist that seems so heroic beside them. Therefore, they may be just as capable of attaining a kind of redemption. Make no mistake, people who commit atrocities like the recent one at the Christchurch Mosque, they are not the kind of villain that I am interested in. Those who commit such acts truly embody a profound void, a void of imagination, empathy, reason, compassion, and intellect, all that which we value about humanity. They are so hollow that they feel compelled to rely on the loudest of hideous actions so as to send the most vacuous of messages. I have no interest in ever piecing apart such characters. But should I ever pick individuals that seem analogous, such as Countess Bathory from episode 5, who was responsible for far, far more deaths over a longer period of time, it is because there is history between us and her life. Literal centuries. 
The nature of a story in such a distant past aligns her actions to what feels almost darkly romantic, so distant from us that to imagine it is not to conceive of the reality, rather to feel the darkness of a fable. Most importantly, there is no living relative who will feel the heartache of those murders she committed when I retell them. It doesn't diminish the gravity of her actions, but the time itself provides enough distance for us to hear the story without feeling the full impact of what she's done. So, I know that was long-winded, <laughs> but I just had to clear the air, and for my own conscience, but also for the sake of clarity. I'll be posting this in several places so that it can be given in reference if need be. Now, on to our story. But for today, something a bit different. Today I bring you a recount entirely written in the first person of the individual in question. Enjoy. I am called from a long sleep, the stirrings of an old language in my chest like a whisper brushing the ear of a sleeper. I am suspended, but not in water, rather dirt and soil, dust and bones, so thick that I don't know where I find the strength to move within it. Rotten petrichor fills my nostrils, followed soon after by another stench, an underlying rot far more matured, a decay like the oldest of sins still simmering from a primordial betrayal. It enriches that lighter aroma, clings to me like a cloak. No, that is me, I remember, hand groping through the rough darkness. That fragrance is mine. My hand searches, seemingly of its own volition, for something else familiar, it finds strands of long, ragged hair in clumps of frost and soil. I follow the hair's threads to a skull, my skull, and I clench it through the wisps of a nearby root system trying to take hold of it. Once my hand grasps the scalp, I yank it from the ground, not unlike a farmer unearthing a carrot. With my other hand, I crawl out from the earth. The damp soil's rocks scrape against my flesh. Grubs and centipedes slither between my fingers, startled by the sudden movement after many months of stony stillness. But not even the insects try to devour me. They wouldn't take a single morsel, not in all that time. With both hands on solid ground, I wrench myself free from the maw. The place where I rise from burrows far, far deeper than any shallow grave. You should know by now, this isn't a redemption story. Not a hero getting up after his tragic death. No, 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 no. See, this is all meant to be. I have no cheap tricks, no surprise endings, and unlike heroes, I don't die. Soon enough, I'm free. On solid ground again, my bones pop as if to celebrate every movement. Sagging in my left hand, the weight of my head feels at home. 
I brush away the soil from its eyelashes, dig to part the soft fat that binds them shut. Then the world reaches me with its brightness, and I see again. Like the moon's phosphorescence, my skull begins to emanate a soft glow. The backs of disturbed insects shine as they squirm to burrow into the disrupted ground. I hold my head aloft like a lantern to scan the hills, back and forth, gazing, swaying. What a dizzying awakening. Beside the rows of mildewy windrows, there is little sign of civilization. The fields are barren, abandoned. The Irish countryside of Galloway is as placid as ever, the idyllic rural setting you might read from the pages of a romance author. The scenery has changed since I last left it, but I can still sense them, sense them like the maggots beneath my feet, their miserly lives, the unfulfilled perfections, their shameful desires. Thinking about it is enough to make me feel nostalgic. But what I missed most of it all, what compels me out from the earth, is that tender sensation, the supple slithering, how their souls slide out when their time ends, as if we were always meant to be this way. This separation of soul and flesh like oil escaping water. I would say it's been too long since I'd been called upon. Summoned, if you will. But the autumn season has just begun, one that is always humming with business for me. Soon, they'll remember me from their storybooks, not. From their campfire tales, not. From their dreams, not. They'll know of me because they will see me on their twilight walks, through their very windows, on the steps of the roads they thought haunted by the wind alone. And oh, I'll be more than just a sighting. Before winter, they'll remember me as more than a fiction, more than a bedtime story. They always do. Listen to me, prattling on. My mare awaits me at the crossroads, not far from where I've risen. The walk to her feels like the lurches of a ship breaking her first waves after leaving the docks. Human bodies contain such wonderful miseries. The sable shadow of her hide responds to my touch. Her body shudders as I slide onto her back. The steed lifts onto her hind legs, kicking at the air with her front hooves. I clench the bridle, head held high. And as the twilight finishes devouring what little day remains, dusk bays at the violet sky, flames sprouting from her nostrils between her bays, as if she'd stolen the sun's flame itself, and I its light, the writer whose heart is little more than a wind-up music box. But they have a different name for me in these parts, or so I've heard. The year was 1752 in Galway, Ireland. The city is known for its prosperous history. During the Middle Ages, it was ruled by an oligarchy, 14 merchant families to be precise. It was also the principal Irish port for trading with Spain and France. 
Ah, those were the days. The plagues, the famines, the scent of rot perfuming every corner, and oh, the hustle and bustle of witches and all their delightful incantations. I spied the ear on a leaflet calling for the head of an outlaw, pocketing it before continuing on my way. A man by the name of James Freeney. Heads, they are such an awful importance, aren't they? Before long, Dusk and I were trotting down a lonesome road. Night had fallen. Our silhouettes melted into the darkness of the horizon. At a crossroads, we ambled away from Galloway's imposing walls. Goats of many varieties prefer to haunt within structures. They enjoy being confined, restricted to a specific object. Perhaps this is a kind of compensation for losing their bodily attachment to the earth. I haven't the faintest idea. I can't sympathize, and then again I do get to keep my body. The road that led me away from the city soon neared a rural village. I readjusted the grip I had on my head and raised it high to look over the entirety of the land, what little there was to see. Each chimney gave off weak puffs of dark smoke, a dreamy aura permeated the structures. The low whining of rusted hinges from a shop sign ground rust with every gust. There can be no immediate explanation for the instinct of Adulahan. Like banshees, we arrive to deliver ominous messages. Unlike banshees, we are the ones who make certain of the final sentence. And that instinct I spoke of, it ignited without warning, began beating my heart and guiding my wild eyes. Folks speak of the strange intensity and speed by which Adulahan's eyes dance about in their sockets. I wouldn't know. You'd have to tell me yourself. Perhaps it is because we are always searching for that which is compelling the unmistakable urge that arises in us. It is, for all intents and purposes, an itch. One that is burrowed deep within the soul. It aggravates as much as it leads us to our destination, our target, our victim. When Dullahans are called upon, they are given a name, and that name, scratching deep into the walls of our spirit, billows itself. It grows and grows so large it becomes almost impossible to keep it within. But a Dullahan must, simply must, keep it in. For we speak but one word for every rising, and that is all we are allowed. Dusk broke into a gallop down the center of the sleeping town. Citizens slammed their windows and doors as I sped past. A child, perhaps looking for a lost toy on the pathway, was thrust back inside their home by her mother. And all at once, that quiet village, which didn't so much as whisper louder than trees in the wind, erupted with screeches and cries. The warnings exploded out from between the cracks of every wall in a room and brick with loosened mortar. Dusk and I are led by an inhuman sense of direction. Stronger than a hound's sense of smell, we are simply set like a compass's needle towards whoever we are called 
to collect. It was only moments before we had reached the end of the village. Dusk's heavy panting smoldered, leaving behind wakes of flame which were engulfed by the foggy air. A trail of smoke marked our path, and before I could contain myself, a belly laugh erupted from me. The cackling sent violent tremors down my arm, my body bouncing from the sheer speed of Dusk's hammering hooves. I don't laugh for any malicious purposes. Wouldn't you laugh, racing through the air once again after being stuck in the ground for months or years? Wouldn't you struggle to quell the excitement? Then I saw it. Him. The man. However you prefer to see it, but what I see is a soul. If for but a moment my darting eyes were still, I grasped the roots of my hair tighter so as to fix my gaze on him and licked my lips greedily. How long it had been since my last collection. How long since my appetite had been baited. The man was running with what little possessions he had, doubtlessly alerted from my heedless laughter. He was tossing glances backward, to no avail. His feet certainly didn't run any faster for it. There was no need to waste the poor man's breath. I kicked Dusk into a gallop. As we descended on the fleeing victim, a scream sprouted from him. He stopped, turned, one of his shaking hands digging into his pocket. But it was the sight of my head that gave him pause. The more than pause, it shattered him. As if death itself was merely a setback, but this, this momentary greeting, this sight, the body of a decapitated ghoul holding his own missing part, smiling down at him, struggling to maintain anything but a mocking sneer, that was the true agony. His fist remained in his pocket and his eyes fixated on mine. We each stood still, bound in this sudden oath of life and death, reluctance and deliverance. And as mysteriously as I arrived, so did the syllables stutter out from my cracked and moldy lips. At last I could let it out. Finally, I could satisfy that itch. James Freeney. I screamed his name, a cry that would put any banshees to shame. It was with the final utterance of his last name that James slouched. His eyes went wide, wider than when he saw me for the first time. Then he keeled forward onto the ground. That's when I felt it. It seeped out from his body before coiling through me. A warmth like the first fire of winter. Shivers so pure and comforting the sensation could last a lifetime's memory. It was over. You see... Adullahan's business is not to haunt, but to end. We do not play games. But before I could leave, I heard the clattering of metal on metal. A light scraping sound, perhaps some mineral. Without turning the horse around, I swiveled my head to see what poor James had been reaching for before the final moment. A single gold coin rolling down the poorly cobbled path. On my return through the village, I could sense the trepidation in each dwelling the jitters. They'd all heard my call, so they knew they were safe, but that logic never provided much relief, I've found. Except, I realized, for one home, perhaps the humblest, most unsuspecting of the lot, an old crone stood outside of the dwelling, hunched over with a gnarled cane and a blanket threadbare, wrapped tightly around her, with a single finger curling at me. She beckoned me closer. I dismounted from dusk, thrusting my head outwards to cast light on her features. 
For the first time in many years, I saw no fear in the eyes looking back at mine. No disgust. Only expectation. Maybe even gratitude. And she was holding something in her other hand, clutching it the same way a husband might hold flowers for his spouse. A gift. For the first time in many centuries, what crossed my face was, was confusion. I peered closer at the object, bringing my head nearer. I made it out. It was snake-like in shape. She let the full length of it slide out from her bony fingers to hang so that I could perceive what it was. Then, offering it to my hand, I discerned the object. It was, down to all thirty-three connecting vertebrae, a human spine, freed of its fleshy formalities, a polished piece of bonework, sheer art, which didn't need to thank me with her words. This was more than a creature like me could ever hope to receive from mortal hands. After tucking the prize under my arm alongside my head, I bowed deeply, and with another soul buzzing in my rotted corpse, I took again to Duska's saddle, and rode off, tempted to look behind me. Jane's spirit would sustain me until my next calling. As I said, autumn is always a busy time for me. With all Hollow's Eve approaching, the nights become long, and the souls aplenty. Thank you for joining me for another tale of mania. As you are undoubtedly realizing, this show has no shortage of variety. <laughs> and although I enjoy maintaining a structure with the introduction, the story, and finally the discussion of what is fact and fiction, I think there is value to be had in changing narrative styles. After all, the trademark of this podcast is to showcase an intimate perspective from a villain. With the Dulahan, I wanted to do just that. The Dulahan has the same Celtic origins of the Banshee, and if you are wondering, it is Celtic or Celtic, depending on the context and which language it is being said in. Anyways, it is a fairy, but not the pleasant kind that comes to mind. Fairies in old Irish folklore are not often very good. This one particularly is a headless horse rider, which often appears on feast days or festivals, riding a black horse. With his head in one hand and his spine for a whip in the other, the Dulahan can utter only a single name each time he rides, and when this person's name is uttered, often after the Dulahan stops riding, that individual dies immediately. There is only one way to stop a Dulahan when it is chasing you, and that is to toss gold behind you. They despise gold and will flee when it is brandished by their victims. There are many versions of the Dulahan, but the Irish portrayal, which is the entire basis for this story, is the one that you've just experienced. There is very little doubt that this is the same character which inspired Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. A wonderful story. I would recommend listening to it on audiobook. However, to my surprise and perhaps chagrin, it wasn't really horrifying. You know, it has that flavor of uh, gothic horror. A Poe-esque horror, but it isn't creepy, it isn't uh, fear-inspiring. Uh, but it is beautiful, so I would recommend reading it if you haven't. It takes about an hour. Historically, the Dulahan is said to be connected to an ancient Irish king, King Tigernmas. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. There's only so many examples. 
who ruled from 1621 to 1544 BC. This king worshipped a god named Cromdu, the Celtic fertility god, which literally translates into the dark stooped one. After Christians inevitably took over the region and cast away pagan deities, it is said that Cromdu became the Dullahan to preserve his form. However, I am unconvinced. A god does not simply become a permanent creature on this mortal plane without a better story. We have no Jesus equivalent of Cromdu, is what I'm saying. So this assumption, in my eyes, cannot be made so easily. There is, however, another explanation. From my research, it seemed apparent that it was the king himself whose soul or spirit inspired the Dullahan. Allow me to explain my theory. Within a year of his reign, this king had won 27 battles against his rival, the descendants of Eberfin. During these battles, he wiped out all, if not nearly all, of that family line. That's a lot of blood. It is also said that during his reign, gold was smelted for the very first time in Ireland. His reign was very prosperous and long and bloody, as he made frequent sacrifices to Cromdu. His favorite way of making these sacrifices? Decapitation. So you see, it isn't so far-fetched to me to think that this king was in fact the true embodiment of the Dullahan, the headless rider. There are far more similarities between their natures than that of a fertility god. Why else would the Dullahan despise gold after being summoned back to claim the souls of the living? Like any king, he lost his gold, his wealth, his power, his earthly reign, and naturally seeing the reminder of this devastating loss of material would strike fury into his heart, his very being, a rippling effect that would send this wrathful, resurrected spirit and body into a sudden retreat. The only reason why the gold in my story did not compel the Dullahan away was because, well, he'd already got what he came for. And although there are no records for King Tigern Mass's death, there are a few records for just how the Dullahan legend came into existence as well. What specific incidents or individuals inspired it? Could it have been that this king was given the same treatment that he'd been given so many, that when he was overthrown, his head was taken from him, lopped off, just like all his sacrificial victims? The gold, the head, the embodiment of wrath, it checks every box on our list for who is precisely the spirit which inspired the headless horseman. So if it ever comes up in conversation, of course, you're the type of person to talk about this sort of thing. When you tell somebody just who the Dullahan is, remember that you heard it first from me. It wasn't the god he was worshipping, but the king himself and his own vengeful spirit that preys on the Irish countrysides all these centuries since. So here we are at the witching hour of this episode. With my tail between my legs, I have to admit that almost the entirety of it was fiction. In truth, there are simply so few stories recounting details of headless horsemen or vengeful spirits riding around on horses. Irving's story is by far the most popular, yet it owes itself entirely to the same legends which have so few documents backing them up. In the episode where I told the tale of a banshee, there were true documented accounts. Whether or not the individuals themselves actually saw a banshee is up for debate, of course, but the fact that they had stories to tell in the first place is indisputable. That they had locations, specific characters, dates, etc. Here, with today's tale, we have no such luxury. Nothing to work with, really. Very little. But the Dullahan has such an iconic presence in gothic horror that I figured I owed it to him. In order to give it some historical flavor, I set it around the time of Washington Irving's legend of Sleepy Hollow, 
which takes place in 1790, but to give our protagonist a victim, I had to backtrack to around 1852, which was three years after the legendary highwayman and outlaw James Freeney was arrested. I could have made up any old name, but again, we had so little to work with I figured I'd go find something worthwhile. Irish highwaymen were quite the phenomena in those times, and James was no exception. He has a very colorful history, one which is often summed up as Ireland's Robin Hood. Unlike most highwaymen, who would simply be executed on the spot for their crimes once being captured, James had ties in high places and actually avoided execution. This gave me reason to believe that there might have been a few people who wanted his head after it had narrowly escaped the gallows. As with the details of the Doolahan himself, the only thing I altered was the nature of his summoning. Again, there were no sources to suggest why or how a Doolahan rides out on unsuspecting knights to steal away souls. It's often thought that he's looking for his own head, though that doesn't necessarily explain why he's killing people. So there were no details to alter, it was really pure fabrication. Like banshees, their nature is somewhat mysterious, but given the vengeful way in which they ride out and the apparent retaining of a human corpse that they are capable of, I thought the whole thing smelled of witchcraft. The location, time, and characters had no connection whatsoever, beside the stringing together of, of traditional literary details with myth. In fact, the only character that ever truly existed was James Freeney. The rest are all ghosts and ashes. Thus ends to date the most fictitious episode of Mania aired on these haunted sound waves. I hope at the very least it gave you a little perspective into what it's like to be riding around at the head of a headless horseman. So thank you, dear listener, for gracing me with your ears. I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time. If you have been enjoying the show, please consider supporting it through Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash Harlequin Grimm. There you will find exclusive content. Ooh. That is only available to patrons and patrons only. It is a fantastic way to show your love for the show. And me, maybe. And with more and more supporters, it will surely become the lifeblood necessary to see its full potential blossom. But if finances are scarce, and I understand... You can, show, you can share the show with your friends, you can blog about it, talk about it on your own podcast, or leave ratings and reviews. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Harlequin Grimm. Following me there and interacting with me is also a means of supporting the show, believe it or not. This world is all about talking, I'm finding. Today, something very special happened. Today, somebody tweeted at me, Travis Boudon. I'm surely butchering that last name. It's French and beautiful and fancy, all the things that I am not. However, he said, I spend a lot of time in my car, and therefore, therefore, a lot of time listening to podcasts. Harlequin Grimm's Mania podcast shines a little light on some delightfully dark moments in history, and it's engagingly written and narrated in a smooth, leisurely voice. I recommend it. Okay, before I start crying, Travis, I wanted to just tell you, thank you very much. That was so touching. Okay. Uh, this week, I also have another specific thank you and shout-out to give. The Shelved podcast so graciously volunteered to shout-out Mania to its own audience. Shelved is a podcast which discusses and reviews unproduced movie scripts, so if you're interested in exclusive and difficult-to-find content in showbiz, they are a fantastic source. They often do polls with their audience and treat them to such delights like the script for the second film in the Batman series, and we all know 
just how gorgeous that film was. There's some incredible writing to be found there. I'm not sure how they got their hands on the scripts, but it is fascinating all the same. Both their Instagram and Twitter handles are at shelvedpodcast. Check them out. Lastly, I have to thank Curious Fire for providing the introductory score to the show. You can find him on social media platforms at Curious Fire. He's a talented producer and drummer. We also have Windswept, a Swedish musician who composes many of the tracks you might hear between passages. Any other musicians whose content is free for use is mentioned and credited appropriately in either the show's notes or wherever applicable, given each respective platform. Thank you again for your continued support. It is listeners like you who give their own blood for the rituals which keep these unholy... <coughs> Wait a second. Okay. Which makes all of this possible, right? <laughs> Which makes all of this possible. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Until next time.